This is the AI Health Podcast, where we explore the ways in which AI will transform healthcare, biotech, and medicine through conversations with entrepreneurs, investors, and scientists. Hey, I'm your co-host, Pranav Rajforkar. And I'm Adrielle Saporta. And you're listening to the AI Health Podcast. Today, we're going to be talking to Dr. Kirsten Stead, who's a managing partner at DCBC Bio, which is a venture capital fund supporting companies using deep tech within life science industries. Adriel, I'm excited about this, but a lot of our listeners might be wondering what deep tech is all about. Yeah, it's a, it's a bit of a fancy term. So when we talk about deep tech, we're talking about companies whose products are based on substantial scientific or engineering challenges. So as opposed to solutions, which are more about the packaging of a technology or finding a new application for an existing technology. And these kinds of products often require pretty lengthy research and development and a pretty large upfront capital investment. In the healthcare industry, new pharmaceuticals, treatment regimens, and surgical procedures are often deep tech solutions that require multiple rounds of testing. Working with human patients is time consuming, costly, and in some cases, unfeasible. One solution to this bottleneck I thought we'd chat about is the digital twin technology that can help make these processes more efficient and safe. Okay, I'm going to take a wild guess at what a digital twin is. Would my digital twin be a sort of virtual or digital representation of me? That's exactly right. A digital twin is the generation of digital data that is representing some physical object. So in simple terms, we're creating a virtual copy of a physical thing. And that thing could be a car, a tunnel, a bridge, or a patient. And the idea is that whatever that physical thing is, connected sensors on that thing in the real world can collect data that can be mapped onto the virtual mode of that thing. So now anyone looking at the digital twin can now see crucial information about how the physical thing or person is doing out there in the real world. For engineering complex structures or buildings, a digital twin is a vital tool to help engineers not only understand how their product is performing, but also how they might perform in the future or if they're changed in some way. So we can ask these what if questions. Like if there's a tall building that we're constructing, what if the wind speed was this high? Would the building be able to endure it? That's right. So how does a concept of a digital twin help in medicine? The digital twin concept for personalized medicine is as follows. So for an individual patient, we can construct a digital twin of that patient, which would contain as much information as is possible to collect about that patient. We can have multiple copies of this twin, and we can have each copy be computationally treated with one or more of thousands of drugs, and thus model how the patient does when given each of these drugs. Got it. And so this modeling could be done using machine learning approaches, or it could be an underlying mathematical or biological model of the system. That's right. And on that note, we don't even have to create a digital twin of a full patient. So as you can imagine, being able to capture all of the complexity of even small cells is very hard. And capturing the model in detail is often tough, especially as we get to very complex systems. 
Several companies in the space are developing digital twins of organs and other anatomical structures to streamline and personalize the medical device design process. There are applications looking at creating a digital twin of the human heart. So this twin can then enable a surgeon to see the impact on a patient's condition and the placement of, let's say, electrodes in the heart before surgery even begins. That's so cool. So I imagine that because digital twins can ensure the best possible outcome, let's say for a medical intervention, they can save a lot of money in unnecessary care down the line. Definitely. Now, another example where digital twins can really help is in clinical trials. As we've previously talked about, clinical trials are expensive, time-consuming, and inefficient. And on average, 80% of studies experience delays in enrollment, and about 20% of trials fail to meet enrollment goals altogether. Jeez. And, and one common issue that often comes up in clinical trials is how challenging it can be to find patients who not only fit whatever criteria is needed for that trial, but who are also willing and able to participate in the trial. Exactly. Now, finding trial participants can be a big bottleneck and can ultimately delay patient access to life-saving therapeutics. But now digital twins of trial participants could alleviate several of these bottlenecks. Hmm. So traditionally, a clinical trial includes two study groups, the experimental arm, which consists of trial subjects who receive the therapy under observation. And then there's the control arm, which receives a non-active placebo intervention. That's right. So how do digital twins help here? So in the setup you described, one idea could be to use the digital twin technology to create these virtual synthetic control arms, which are composed of digital twin participants. Now, we'll dive into what this means during our interview today. So if you're a listener and thinking you don't quite understand what this means, that's okay. Okay, that's great to hear because I have a lot of questions about that. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest, Dr. Kirsten Stead, who's a managing partner at DCVC Bio, a venture capital fund that supports companies that have a deep tech advantage and are building products for life science industries. So therapeutics, agriculture, synthetic biology. Previously, Kirsten was a scientist and holds a PhD in molecular biology and genetics and an MBA in finance. She's a lead investor in companies like Abcelera and Blue River Technology, among many others. Well, Kirsten, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. So you run the bio arm of DCVC, and the firm as a whole focuses on deep tech. And so I was wondering if you could maybe start by explaining to us what deep tech looks like when it's applied to bio. What kind of companies are you looking at? Sure. Yeah. So what we mean when we talk about deep tech as applied to the life sciences, I mean, for us in particular, it means in the fields of therapeutics, industrial biotechnology and agriculture. And what we mean by that is that either there is some use of deep computational technologies that can take the form of, you know, some usually some combination of artificial intelligence, generating their own data set of some kind is really important. So these aren't companies that are generally searching 
available data. It's a more complex approach to um, achieving some insight. Then they're developing their own algorithms and often then using robotics or automated systems on top of that to make new discoveries and develop new products for the life sciences. It can also take the form of working on something that perhaps doesn't have automation that is strictly in biology, but it's solving a problem that is challenging. So it's not an incremental improvement over what's up. It's a new platform. It's a new modality. It's a new approach to a certain disease or solving a certain type of biology. So, you know, from a practical standpoint, what that means is that it takes longer. It requires a team with deep expertise, usually across multiple silos. So integrated teams across those spaces. And that in turn takes a different approach. When you're working on developing companies that are platforms that are highly scalable, we focus on those companies, funding those companies, bringing people into those companies that are different than we would if we were a traditional life science investor or traditional tech investor. So that's what it means. It has both practical and theoretical implications to how we invest and think about companies. You mentioned generating a data set as being an important component. I'm curious how you think about how much importance uh, you give to a company that's generating its own data set versus how it's thinking about building its own technology. How do you think about one versus the other? Well, those things are in line, right? We look at companies that if they have computation or automation as a part of their technology stack, that it's a flywheel, they're creating a flywheel, right, with their own technology. So that data set is one piece of that. And they're using that to feed into a set of findings that they then run experiments on and then feed the results of those experiments back into their systems. And so over time, they develop a virtuous cycle that gets smarter and smarter and better and better. And that helps with scale. So often our companies are able to work on not just five or six therapeutic programs or one or two therapeutic programs, but 90 therapeutic programs. And so I I don't think you could separate those two concepts. Got it. So the idea here is rapid scaling that is achieved by having both the focus on generating a data set and the technology. How important do you see being able to generate a large data set being to create a competitive advantage over other new competitors entering the space? Oh, well, you know, it depends what the company is trying to create, right? So there are certain problems that we still need larger data sets or more bespoke data sets, but certainly with some new emerging types of AIs or experimental based data, you don't necessarily need large data sets. You just need smartly built data sets, right? We find a lot of our companies are purposely building their data sets for the type of findings they need. I think that's more important. It's focus more oversize. Um, and yes, do they have a competitive advantage over large, you know, uh, large pharma or large ag, you know, these companies aren't cynical about these new emerging technologies, but all large companies face integration challenges, right? And redundant systems, systems that have been around for a long time. And it's very difficult for large companies to retool their internal workings, you know, on the fly for to achieve a completely different goal. And that's where the competitive advantages are for smaller companies. Got it. So a large company is going to have just a lot of infrastructure around traditional ways of going about things, while a smaller company can come in with some innovation and some fast movement and change the picture there. That's right. Yeah. So Kirsten, you mentioned that a lot of the companies that you look at are essentially platforms. And I always think sort of in the in the SaaS space, you can build some software and then you can scale that really easily to a bunch of different clients or customers. 
And I'm curious how you think about that in the AI space, because I think a lot of people feel like AI is harder to scale, right? If you're building out a certain model for a specific client, that may not necessarily translate to a client in a different geography or with you know a slightly different take on that problem. And so I'm curious as an investor, is that something that worries you or are you not looking at companies that addresses specifically? Yeah, so I think your question is, it, this is a well-known question that's asked in our business, which is, there's a big difference between companies that are delivering a software solution, right? Which are scaling in the way and have to address customers in the way you're describing. I would say digital health, computational care, you know, CLIA lab services, and some, some degree diagnostics and things like that all, you know, can fall into that class of investments. And I would say those are, look and smell a lot like SaaS offerings. You know, they have some regulatory requirements and there's some other challenges there associated with them. You know, DCVC does invest in those types of technologies. But on our side of the business, we have to embody the findings of whatever our company is working on in a product that's going to be dosed into a human or go onto a plant or, you know, be used to build a cell therapy or a novel trait in a plant or a novel material or something like that. And so our companies don't necessarily sell services. They do work collaboratively with some larger companies, but we think about how can we embody what they're learning and their robotic system, their automation, their deep tech, whatever it is, into a therapy, just to use that as an example. Because at the end of the day, there's going to be a molecule, an organism, a plant, a cell, a protein um, that's going to be the output of that system. Got it. Does that make sense? No, it does. That's, that was beautifully, beautifully explained. You guys are investing in such deeply technical companies. I'm curious if you feel that as an investor, you need to be able to sort of match that technical expertise on the part of the people you're investing in and, and how you conduct due diligence with a lot of these companies. Yeah, I would say it's a it's a perk being technical. So the partners at our firm are all, you know, they have PhDs. Because we invest early, so we uh, invest in very early stage technologies, including founding and starting companies. So I would say at the front end, we get approached by academics that want to start companies out of their academic research. Both my partner and I, John Hamer, have been academics at points in our careers, all the way through to sort of series A companies. So companies that have had some friends and family, some incubator capital in, uh, very often we're the first institutional capital. I would say absolutely because of that, it helps that we're technical. We're able to read their papers. We're able to talk and set technical milestones we often know personally their academic advisors and things like that. So I, th I think it's very helpful. As the company grows, you know, you'll see more generalists then invest in later stage biotech companies because the programs, the business model, you know, that sort of starts to become more important. But I would say at early stages, understanding um, the technical attributes of your area are very, very important. And I think in life science, you know, you asked a question before about software companies, so computational care, et cetera, those require completely different data set or uh, completely different skills. So you want someone who understands the workflow in a doctor's office, the how CLIA labs, how run, how Walgreens outsources their systems, how, you know, this is a very different skill set, but I would say it's a huge advantage to understand the business you're going in before you try to invest in that space. And you, of course, have a very technical background, so you're well-equipped, but do you guys ever bring in a third party to come in and, and look at a company before you invest, or does it all happen in-house? I would say for the most part, 
you know, sort of, I'm going to make a number of probably about 80% of the time we have the skills in-house to diligence, whatever technology we're looking, but it's absolutely true that sometimes, you know, we can't be masters of everything. If it's a particular chemistry that we haven't worked in in the past or some very technical area, then we'll call a buddy somewhere and get input. Do you think that the space is becoming more or less or the same competitive just from an investing perspective? Oh, I think there's no question that we're at peak biotech, you know, certainly in my career, I don't know if we're at peak biotech, I hope that it'll stay so positive going forward. But in my career, this is the most enthusiastic, I think the general investor market has been in biotechnology. And, you know, we're in a pandemic right now. I'm kind of grateful that the world has suddenly woken up and realized that there are molecular biologists around the world who've been toiling in this space for decades and decades, all of their careers. And I hope that they get appreciated for that. So I think there's some positive outcome, but yes, because of that, there is a lot of interest from generalist investors and tech investors in biotech at the moment because of a couple of unique things. There's a lot of private equity market around right now. And also biotech has had, so this is, we're in December, 2020, we're doing this interview. I think there's something like 62 biotech IPOs this year alone. So. Wow. Wow. That's crazy. I imagine for a lot of these technologies that are at the cutting edge of the field, a lot of them are coming from academic roots or from folks who are still part of academia. What do you see as some of the biggest challenges in taking some of these ideas that come out of academia and are started by academics when they come to industry? I would actually say some of the biggest challenges we see, and I'll sort of exclude the Bay Area and the Boston area. Many academics have learned this, you've learned this and are, are pretty sophisticated on company formation, but that's a very, very small group of academics. I would say for the most part, what academics in this region have learned is that it's all about people. And so you'll find in sort of, we'll say out of region companies, academics will try and start a company themselves while still working in academia, right? They'll try and have one leg in a company and one leg, you know, in their academic role that very, very seldom works, right? It, you know, the entrepreneur needs to stand on the burning platform of cash um, <laughs> with one focus. There is a lot of benefit to that. Whereas you'll find in the in-region places, academics have learned to hand it over to a great postdoc, a fantastic grad student, bring in a VC early on who has a fantastic CEO in their network that's looking for their next thing, that though that's the fastest path to sort of really bringing out a technology, trying, making sure it works in someone else's hands, which, you know, we do right out of the bat Mm -hmm. and then build the company from there. So that sort of sequence of events is uh, a really productive sequence versus the trying to figure out how to be an academic and start a company and figure out where to put your grad students and do it, trying to do it all on your own. That's really challenging. Got it. So go all in on the industry front rather than having one foot in in each store. Or yeah, it doesn't necessarily mean you, you know, the academic has to commit full time. They can stay an academic, be on the science advisory board, but hand hand over the operation of the company to professionals. Got it. Now, let's say an academic came to you and said, I have this fantastic cutting edge technology for drug discovery using machine learning and has the option of either licensing that technology out to a big company or spinning out something themselves, what advice would you give them? 
Well, obviously, you know, it depends on what the technology is, but generally speaking, that technology needs a fulsome ecosystem around it, right? So if it's in the example you gave, you know, drug discovery technology that's evolving out of some academic work, it's going to need validation. It's going to need, you know, it's very seldom, especially on the compute side, it's very seldom that there's aggressive patent protection on things like that. It's usually around some patents and some know-how and some expertise. And so that's always better, easier to develop in a standalone company because there's not much to license to a large pharma or a large ag company or whatnot. Got it. So if I understand right, the, the technology should be validated before it's ready to be started into a company of its own. I'm curious. So I hear the term partner early very often in venture capital. And on the entrepreneur side, one of the questions that comes up is when is too early versus the right stage. So what's your advice, especially for those working on these deep technologies in terms of when they should be one reaching out to investors and when they should be trying to raise money? Oh, so you mean partner as in partner with VCs or partner with corporations? Partner with VCs. Yeah, I think the best entrepreneurs have pretty good relationships with some VCs to run their ideas past and certainly tap into you know, most VCs like us have pretty broad networks of people we know are looking to be the next CTO, next CEO of small companies. And so running your ideas past professional investors is never a bad idea and developing a relationship early. When your question, when is too early? Well, I, it, there's nothing that's too early. We funded a person and an idea. If we believe in that person and we believe in that idea. So I would say there is no too early to start thinking about that. Obviously, if you think you can take it farther, by all means, take it farther, but having the conversations never hurts. You mentioned how important it is to, to validate an idea and, and a market before kind of going forward. And I'm curious, I, I imagine that the space that you're investing in, it can be hard to sort of create the traditional MVP, like you can't just whip up, you know, some kind of very highly technical robot. And I'm kind of curious what you look for in entrepreneurs who are at the very, very, very beginning of an idea and how you validate that idea as it's starting to build out. Right. So, well, in the example that we're talking about, a really early stage, say something's coming out of academia, in the life sciences, it's actually not too difficult to get either that data recapitulated. So either in someone else's lab or in the hands of the entrepreneurs, right? If that data was generated by someone else or at a contract research organization, or we call them CROs in the business. So it's actually, the system is well set up to enable that type of validation. And then of course, the second piece to that is there is academic validation, right? The type of work that can generate a great paper and commercial validation, and they aren't always the same thing. And so we want to make sure that the technology is, is robust enough that it could develop a product and not just a paper. You know, we, I used to joke when I was just left academia that one of the great chafing between academics and companies is that the companies they form is that oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes academics think they've done 90% of the work and there's 10% of the work to do. And CEOs of young companies say, well, 10% of the work's been done and 90% is left to do. So uh, I think that's, you know, it paints, a, it paints a picture of reality of what level of validation you need if you want to build a commercial product from something. And I see a lot of companies actually publishing papers as they're going forward in, in their journey. Is that ever a concern in terms of sharing the secret sauce behind what a company is doing? What's the decision behind that? 
so I think, you know, peer-reviewed publications and science-based companies are fantastic when entrepreneurs can do it. It provides uh, real validation if you want to go into partnering opportunities with life science companies later. Really, uh, you know, the technical people in those companies will pay attention to published works. And you don't necessarily give up, you know, if you have, you're publishing, say, for example, a chemical scaffold of some kind, you know, you usually got a patent on that scaffold before you publish. And so you're not necessarily giving up secret information or making trade-offs that you don't normally want to make. There's ways to get it done, generally speaking. And you'd mentioned earlier that there's a growing private equity community around this space. Could you maybe talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. So, I mean, we joke in the industry, it's like uh, if you walk down the street, most people can name, you know, five out of the top 10 tech companies, but most people absolutely cannot name five out of the top 10 biotech companies. Right. And so for most of, you know, my career, biotech has existed in a shadow of a very small group of investors. But because of the economic environment at the moment, there's what we call a private equity overhang. So there's a lot of money sitting inside private equity at the moment, which is allowing them to diversify and invest in spaces they wouldn't normally invest in. That generally happens later. So where domain experts have invested earlier and those later investors can ride a little bit on the diligence of what's come before it. Uh, but I think they're mostly economic factors that have enabled this private equity overhang. And then to layer onto that, the reason that it's so robust at the moment is there has been over the last five years, an explosion of biological insights. Mm. So, and that's pretty typical for science, right? It ebbs and flows, but we are sitting in a golden age of, of biology. Cell therapies are exploding. Gene editing is exploding. Um, you know, ability to edit plants. The con you know, we've been able to work on traits that we never dreamed of when I was younger, you know, things like that. So we're existing not only in a place where there's lots of money, but there's lots of good ideas to fund at the moment. So it's a wonderful time to be in biology. As these new technologies are coming to the forefront, I imagine that regulation must start to play a bigger role in your mind in terms of what you're investing in and where you might get stopped along the way. Can you maybe talk a little bit about how you navigate that? Sure. Well, in therapeutics, regulation is par for the course. It's part of the plan. It's integrated into every investment thesis. So nothing there has changed. Every product, no matter how it's made, no matter what new biology is the source of the insight goes through the same regulatory process. And, you know, in, in the United States, FDA is extremely proficient, extremely co cooperative and stringent at the same time. So I think my concern there is, is not great. It's a part of the business um, and you have to just understand that part of the business. Now, as we talked before, if you're in the service business, the bar is lower there on the regulatory front, which is why you see a lot of more investors in those spaces. So if you, you're selling software, you're selling a service, yes, there are some, if you're delivering a recommendation, there are some regulatory hurdles you need to jump over, but they're not as stringent as if you're developing therapy. Now in agriculture, this is some shift, you know, the sands shift. We don't know why, but for some reason, people are okay being transgenic themselves, but sometimes they don't wanna eat transgenic food. And uh, it depends where you live. And so the regulations reflect the drunken walk of consumer preference. And so there, I would say in agriculture, there's a lot more risk associated with regulatory concerns uh, because of that. Now, one thought process I have about regulation is 
it's sort of a binary determining point. After X years, I get approval, I'm able to sell. Before that, I'm not able to sell. Is this the way that it's thought about in industry and investing as well, that we're just going to wait a certain amount of time before we can expect this company to have any customers? Or are there workarounds that happen in the short to medium term? Right. So when you're in the therapeutic industry, what I think you're referring to is the FDA regulates when you're allowed to dose a human being. So it's not necessarily uh, yes or no, you win, you get customers or not. Remember, healthcare is a pretty unique market where your customer is not the payer. And basically, the FDA regulates not only safety, but also efficacy. And so you have to be better than what came before you. As a result of that, you're almost guaranteed a market at the end of it. And so value in therapeutics companies is created in data packages that were reviewed by the FDA. And there's a lot of value to be created there. So it is not absurd for a phase two company. So think of it as sort of halfway through regulatory to be acquired for billions of dollars, which just doesn't happen in the tech industry. Mm. And it's because of this, because of the data package they've generated and the value created in that data package. Now there are off ramps to that. So before you're in the clinic, a lot of our companies can partner with large pharma, large biotech, large ag, you know, synthetic biology companies to do partnerships and get upfront payments to do collaborative R&D research. And those can sometimes be in the tens of millions of dollars for upfronts, which can replace financing rounds. So there are ways for companies, even if you're a hardcore therapy company and you're not making services of any kind to generate revenues early on before you're even in clinical trials and dosing human beings. Got it. And is the idea for that, that these contracts, the small company gets paid, but then the pharma gets access to being able to sell the product when it's ready for application on patients? Yeah, that's, that's right. So typically the large biotech or large pharma will agree to pay for some of the research upfront. And then if it gets to a certain stage, they can take it over and develop it further. And then the smaller company is entitled to royalties, milestone payments, and is rewarded for that co-development. Got it. That's awesome. Before we go into uh, particular companies right now, I was curious. So you focus on deep biotech companies. Are there any specific areas that you're most excited about scientifically or technologically right now? We are entering an age, so I'll just stick to you know, sort of com computational insights, where there are some types of drugs, and I'm going to use sort of drugs for genetic diseases as an example, that we think now that we can make predictive assertions about how they'll perform in the clinic before we put them in the clinic. And that's, mm. that's code for putting them into human beings and putting in them through that process. And I've always been interested in inborn genetic diseases, specifically genetic diseases of children and infants. And up until today, till today, there's been no way to treat those patients because those patients tend to be extraordinarily small populations. And in the business, we call these N of one, meaning that you might be the only patient with that disease. And I believe we're entering into a realm where we can finally start treating patients with individual diseases or tiny patient populations, which up until this point, pharma has not been able to address, right? It takes just under you know, $2 billion to develop a drug right now. And so pharma is incentivized or has to go after patient populations that are big enough to serve. And so through these uh, you know, burgeoning technologies in both 
biological modalities, so types of drugs we're developing, like genetic medicines, gene editing, cancer tumor monitoring, we are finally being allowed to look at really small patient populations and work on some of these patients. Got it. So there's this transition from working on problems that are affecting many, many patients to problems that affect a, a few patients with the advancements in these technologies. That's right. Yeah. I would love to talk about one of your portfolio companies, Unlearn. And my understanding is that Unlearn uses AI technology to make clinical trials faster and safer for patients. And before we even get into what Unlearn does, can you maybe talk to us a bit about why clinical trials are so long and time-consuming right now in a pre-AI world? Yeah, sure. So when we, uh, everyone, all of us, you know, we're all in this together, you know, are prescribed a medication for something, we need to trust the regulatory agencies and the physician needs to trust the regulatory agencies that these drugs are A, more effective than what came before them and are safe and that we know how to dose them and we know what the side effects are and we know which patient populations they should go into. Those are all the questions that clinical trials are designed to address. And so phase one and phase two are designed to test safety and dosing. And generally speaking, Phase three are what we call pivotal trials, and those are really to determine how well, if at all, does that product work, and it must work better than what came before it. And this has proven to be a fantastic system that the rest of the world has modeled their systems after because we have built a system that we progress. We progress incrementally over many different approvals that our drugs get better and better and better. Now, that takes a long time because there's massive ethics and regulatory oversight. When you start to dose a patient, you have to guarantee that you're not going to cause any harm. And so these are highly monitored, tightly controlled, run by third parties. You have to hire groups to run them for you because they're generally double-blinded, meaning that really no one knows who the placebo groups are and who the experimental groups are. Now, that's the other question. So... Uh, in all clinical trials, there's a placebo group, which gets the standard of care. So whatever the best standard of care is, uh, no matter what it is, that's what the placebo arm gets. But they actually generally, not always, generally don't know. We don't know who the placebo group is and who's an experimental group. And that's really important because we know that there are huge psychological advantages to know that you're getting treatment. And in fact, if any of us have the opportunity to join clinical trials, you really actually want to join and be on clinical trials because the outcome of those trials, whether you're in the experimental arm or the placebo arm, placebo arm are generally better. A, you're getting really high standard of care, but also there's this great placebo effect that people enjoy when they know they're being cared for um, in that way. I didn't realize that even the, the control arm has a higher standard of care than would likely be outside of a clinical trial. That's interesting. Yeah, generally, generally that's true. And so that takes a lot of money. You know, there are different numbers out there, but generally speaking, it's about a couple billion dollars from discovery to approval to get through. Now, if you can imagine, we're getting back to unlearn, there are diseases out there where there has been no standard of care. Let's look at a disease like Alzheimer's. We have essentially very little we can do for Alzheimer's patients. And so there's an ethical question there. So if we have a situation where for many diseases, there hasn't been a change in standard of care, or there isn't a really great alternative, out comes a company uh, called Unlearn AI. And what they've done is they've said, we can use a very special type of AI called a GAN, so it's a generative adversarial network. 
And so if you think about deep fakes and you know, autonomously generated faces, it's a similar type of technology that's being used to create control patients for clinical trials. So if you can imagine one of our parents has Alzheimer's and they want to go into a clinical trial, no one you know, wants their parent to go into the placebo group. We much prefer that they go into the experimental group. And this company, Unlearn AI, offers a solution to that where every patient um, potentially could go into the clinical arm and not the placebo arm. So they're able to replicate control patients and an unlimited amount of control patients and all of their patient records over time for these specific set of diseases. And the hope is that the FDA will be able to use that data so that for pivotal trials, especially, um, or at least parts of clinical trials, we can decrease the number of placebo arm patients and put them into the experimental arm. Is the idea that you're creating a fake version of this patient to try to understand what that treatment might look like down the road without actually having to administer that treatment? I think if it's more, it's more on the control arm. So they're able to understand the natural course of disease. So if I go into a clinical trial, so Kirsten is in a clinical trial, the easiest way to think about it is they can replicate me to go also into the placebo arm. And so I will pursue in the placebo arm, my digital me will pursue the natural course of disease that is attributed to me and my personal history and my personal biology. Whereas Kirsten, the real person, gets to enter into the experimental arm and receive the drug. And is this something that's already okay with the FDA or, or is that sort of the next step in the business's journey? Yeah, so this is a collaborative process. And so the company's in discussions with regulatory agencies about what sort of data they would need to be to become more and more involved, but they are already doing clinical trials in this space with a couple of partners, which is really exciting. That's incredible. And is the idea that Unlearn AI would sell this technology to drug makers or would they actually just start to develop drugs themselves and then use this technology in the process of clinical trials? You know, I think all options are open and all options have to be open when you're building a company. But, you know, per your previous question, are you going to be a services company or a therapeutic company? They're probably more on the service side. So right now, this industry exists, right? So if you're going to run a clinical trial, you're generally outsourcing a lot of the management of the patient population administration of the clinical trial to third parties. And they would be one of these third parties. I think the technology sounds so cool. So if I understand right, the idea behind looking at my future in the control arm is I don't have to understand how this new drug on which I have no data would work. I get to observe that because that's what the patient gets. But then in the alternate world in which they did not get that drug, we get to see their natural progression through the next steps in the future. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Can I ask how you found the founders of Unlearn? Did they come to you? Did you find them? Yeah, so DCVC provided the seed capital for this company. Uh, we really liked the CEO. We weren't quite sure what he was going to work on exactly, what the company was going to be necessarily when we put the seed company in, but a uh, great team. He comes out of Pfizer and so had the appropriate background to work on this kind of project. And it evolved over time. And with many of our early seed investments at the firm as a whole, we're often taking bets on really talented entrepreneurs um, with basic concepts. And this was no exception. 
And then I think when we on the bio side also saw that they were moving clearly into this path, we immediately recognized it as a massive unmet need, a benefit to society, a great team pursuing something that was really technically challenging that we knew that you know, larger companies just wouldn't have the skills to be able to replicate. So I think that's when we doubled down and led their next round. Can you maybe talk about how COVID might have changed the company's progress at all? Was there maybe a doubling down on things because of the importance of getting new drugs and vaccines through so quickly? It did. You know, not, they weren't involved in any of those trials, but I do think a lot of companies who were running clinical trials during COVID were very affected for, you know, patient enrollment became a problem, et cetera, et cetera. And I think uh, people started looking around for alternatives of how could they get more data and do more with fewer patients. And Unlearn is a big part of solving that problem. You know, one thing that you and I had spoken about a month or so ago was sort of this fear that it, that exists around privacy and, and that AI is going to sort of take over. You know, it's really interesting. I think Americans in particular have a very specific view on patient data and privacy, which is not replicated in other parts of the world. So, you know, places like UK, Canada, anonymized data from, you know, healthcare data is not viewed with such a stingy eye as it's viewed in the United States. You know, that's a result of culture here and also the way our institutions, we have a private healthcare system but it's not universal. And so I'm a little more laissez-faire. I don't have a problem with anonymized data. I don't have a problem with my information being shared on an anonymized standpoint. And a lot of people don't, a lot of Americans don't. There's a lot of times we're donating sequence data, SNP data, et cetera, to companies, to hospital centers. And so I think it's a benefit to society. I think we're all in this boat together. And the more private companies can work with you know, anonymized patient data, the better off we're all going to be because the more interventions these companies can design. But of course, you know, if you're asking, you know, does it have to be anonymized? Of course, right? Of course, we all want anonymized data pools. Is that something that Unlearn AI has had to think about at all as they're creating these digital twins? So all companies that work in healthcare have to be compliant in regard to their data. But I think Unlearn is not particularly vulnerable to this because they are generating people that don't exist but they will be handling records and they are under the same types of governance that any other company in their situation would be. I want to take a step back and ask about innovation opportunities that you're especially excited about now and post-COVID that you think will be game changers in the field. Well, as I mentioned, I think there's a you know, flourishing in the field of cell therapy. The idea that we have to sort of take cells out of people's bodies and engineer them and put them back, I think we are coming to some solutions to that, which is really, really interesting. And then the field of synthetic biology and therapeutics intersecting, where we can start designing bespoke proteins to take certain actions is also an area that is uh, really interesting. And we're thinking a lot about that. And so would you say this field in five years, where do you think we'll be? I know you mentioned that we'll be able to do therapeutics for much smaller numbers of people. Are there any other big changes that you see that will be enabled in, in five years with these technologies? Well, I think the big thing coming from a practical standpoint is the treatment of cancer that you and I will notice, you know, as we, as our generation gets older, 
is that the concept of chemotherapy, right, treating cancer patients with drugs that directly kill cancer cells and also damage us in turn, those days I think are going to quickly pass where we're hoping that front lines, so meaning first therapies we get are going to be immune therapies, right? These are ways to convince, tease, and trick our own immune systems into attacking our own cancers. The data coming back from this field of research is astonishing, right? This is all enabled by immunology, computational methods, and also genome editing and viral vectors. So there's a confluence of technologies that have come together and it's allowing us to build this plat- these platform companies that we call immuno-oncology companies. And I think in five years' time, so some of those companies are commercial or some of those therapies are commercial today, but in five years' time, there's going to be much more of those. And I'm hoping by that point, it really becomes the standard of care, the first line, and the results there are astounding. Mm. Uh, so I think by the t- I'm hoping by the time I'm old and you know at high risk of having some cancer or another, that that will be how we look at it, is it's an immune treatment, not necessarily a small molecule treatment. Got it. So rather than targeting the cancer, target the immune system, that's where we're moving towards. This was so wonderful, Kirsten. Thank you for taking the time to, to chat with us. You're very welcome. It's been great talking. And that's all, folks. A big thank you to Dr. Kirsten Stead for talking to us today. And thank you for listening. We're your hosts, Pranav and Atrial, and until next time, stay safe and stay healthy. The AI Health Podcast is produced and edited by Oishi Banerjee. Music by Ethan A. Chi. If you like what you just heard, let a friend know. Subscribe to the show and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, follow us on Spotify, or connect with us on Twitter at AI Health Podcast.